Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Cad Lebricks. We're your co-hosts for an intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Breskin and Parr LLP. You can find our episodes at breskinandparr.com forward slash podcast. There, you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. Today, we have a very special podcast all about what I would call the Breskin and Parr philosophy to practicing law, and that's common sense. This is when we usually do our introduction of who our guest is, but Dan Breskin is literally the man who needs no introduction. He's a founding partner of Breskin and Parr, and for many years was considered to be and named as not just the most important or most influential trademark lawyer in Canada, but the most influential trademark lawyer in the world. Thank you so much, Dan, for being with us here today. We have a very interesting topic to discuss and one that I can say from personal experience working with you that you have certainly mastered and hopefully all of us get the benefit to learn from a little bit of your wisdom. So the topic today should be familiar to all of us and that is the topic of common sense. So as IP lawyers, we must be knowledgeable about statute law, common and civil law, as well as judicial precedents. We're used to interpreting these laws using normal canons of construction. How is common sense relevant to all of this? Well, I've always thought that common sense is a very important factor in um, deciding trademark and patent uh, cases especially. Recently, I had occasion to do a, a search on one of the uh, legal search engines, and I found that there are over 300 reported trademark cases where common sense is referred to in the judgment. And if you um, don't restrict the search to trademarks, um, you find well over 10,000 references in reported uh, Canadian um, cases. I think the the point is that while precedent is um, important in determining the outcome of any legal dispute. You have to look at precedents um, and statutes with a certain degree of common sense. Uh, Of course, you have to be motivated by what's reasonable and what what is just. And the problem that I think lawyers face, and I did especially when I was uh, just starting out in the profession, is that you tend to follow precedent uh, without sufficient regard to Uh, common sense. I finally came to the realization, uh, I must say quite early on, that um, if something doesn't make any common sense, the chances are it's not the law. It's as simple as that. How does common sense then help in resolving trademark issues such as likelihood of confusion and alleged descriptiveness? Well, there's a very good recent example of that, um, and that's the Supreme Court of Canada case uh, in Masterpiece versus Alavita. And in that particular case, I was privileged to represent uh, the International Trademark Association as an intervener. Justice Rothstein, who wrote the decision for the uh, unanimous uh, Supreme Court, made reference to common sense a number of times in his reasons. So the question is, why did that case get to the Supreme Court? Because it's very straightforward. I think most young lawyers in our office, including students, would have known the result of the case before it even went to trial, let alone to the Supreme Court. So what happened was that 
At the trial, there was evidence from a marketing expert who was retained by the respondent, who between you and me, I think probably realized that the case had the smell of death about it, so <laughs> decided he needed expert evidence in order to have a chance to win. And so he found an expert who uh, opined that when you consider the respondent's trademark masterpiece living, the emphasis is on the word living rather than on the word masterpiece. Now, I don't think you have to be a trademark lawyer to know that that doesn't make any sense. And the trial judge, I think, was misled by the expert. And in the result, he found that the trademark masterpiece and masterpiece living were not confusing. Uh, fortunately, it went up past the Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court. And there, Justice Rothstein said that uh, judges ought to use their common sense in deciding whether the uh, casual consumer is likely to be confused. Of course, there are plenty of cases where expert evidence is going to be helpful to the court, and I don't want to uh, dis indicate um, otherwise. There are plenty of cases where the circumstances involved are beyond the personal experience of the judge. And in those cases, of course, um, expert, neutral, fair, objective evidence uh, is, is uh, necessary in order to do justice. And likewise, um, there are cases where surveys are very helpful. And we've used surveys ourselves in a number of cases where we, we thought that it would be helpful to the, the court. Surveys are fine as long as they are utterly neutral and you um, choose the right universe of respondents and you ask the right questions. This is easy to say, but it's hard <laughs> to do because um, it is all too easy for subtle biases to creep in and sometimes you need really, really experienced people to be able to detect where the uh, bias is. Um, now, just to round out that monologue, and excuse, excuse me for being so, so long, but in the course of some research I've been doing lately, um, I've come across a number of cases where you have to ask yourself, what could the defendant or his or her lawyer possibly have been thinking? And this one case is actually reported. It was brought by the Law Society of British Columbia to enjoin the use of the website name lawsocietyofbc.ca. The problem with it was that that site linked to an adult website. <laughs> so this was a case where the misrepresentation was so obvious, as a matter of common sense, um, you wouldn't have thought that additional evidence would be necessary, and surely it wasn't. And it's, uh, sadly, I guess I found a number of cases that are, that are like that. You just ask yourself, why did that case get to trial and waste court time? It's a very good, very good point. Um, so many of us are familiar with trademark applications, where the trademark is alleged to either be clearly descriptive or deceptively misdescriptive. And increasingly, with under the new examination practice, we're seeing stricter examination and examiners often uh, digging their heels in. How does common sense, or does common sense, apply to this at all? Well, I think that 
in some cases, and frankly, in a lot of cases that I've uh, seen lately uh, in relation to trademark examinations, examiners seem to be taking very extreme positions. And I think it's because they're not reading the case law correctly. There are plenty of cases where you don't need to use common sense at all. For example, if somebody's trying to register the name of the place where the goods are made, you know, that's obviously not possible uh, validly, so you don't need to apply common sense. You just need to apply the law, and that's, that's that. On the other hand, if you're dealing with a case where the trademark is allegedly deceptively misdescriptive, then there is room for common sense. You know, for example, if I tried to register North Pole for bananas, you know, the fact that it's a geographical location doesn't mean that people are going to be misled into thinking <laughs> that bananas come from the North Pole. My kids might believe Santa's bringing Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's possible. So, you know, and you, you look at some cases that really, in hindsight, look pretty obvious. Like, for example, somebody tried to register the trademark deli snack for food products. And, you know, this ended up getting into the federal court because the registrar rightly decided that deli snack is not registrable because it's descriptive. And the, the case I'm referring to is Neptune versus uh, Canada. That is uh, brought against the, the registrar. The thing is that as a lawyer, I think we have responsibilities not only to the trademarks office, to uh, the court, but also to our client. When you have a case uh, like that, that is um, basically hopeless, I think you have a real obligation to tell the client exactly where they uh, they stand. Um, so, in the in the Supreme Court's uh, masterpiece living uh, decision, there there was a commentary with uh, about needing to strip out your own idiosyncrasies. How does that balance common sense? You know, on one hand, you you have a case as a lawyer that's presented to you by one of your clients. You want to be practical. From your perspective, it's clearly, uh, from a common sense perspective, deli snack is descriptive of deli snacks. How do you self-guard against your own idiosyncrasies and how, you know, how does that get weighed? Well, I think it's that's a very good question. The fact of the matter is that we're all biased about a lot of things. And so there's nobody is able to look at a set of facts with utter objectivity. But if you're a good judge, you try very hard to avoid your own personal idiosyncrasies or personal preferences in weighing against what you're supposed to do, which is to try to figure out what's likely going on in the mind of the ordinary consumer. That's hard to do, and it's not something that can be done perfectly, but that's the objective. And then how do we apply common sense when citing legal precedents? Well, I don't remember a lot of things that I was taught in law school, Kat, <laughs> but one of the things that I do remember is uh, one of our professors saying the important thing when you're looking at legal precedents is to prioritize the facts that the judge says exist and the result. 
and all the stuff in the middle you have to look at but ne don't necessarily follow verbatim. And the reason for that is because the judge has in mind dealing with the specific facts before her or him and not facts that are outside of, um, of that r restricted domain. It's all too common for people to take a look at the words of a judgment and apply it to another situation altogether that the judge never had in mind. The fact of the matter is that most of the uh, legal precedents that are cited in trademark cases have been precedents for many, many generations. Some of them go back more than 150 years. So the result is that um, cases that get into court are almost entirely fact-driven. And as a consequence, what's really more important is weighing the facts, prioritizing the various issues, and coming up with a result that makes sense, uh, rather than slavishly following precedent. It's a hard balance to strike, especially from a Canadian perspective, where we have so little case law. I, I admit that when I you know, I'm, I'm dealing with a, a fact scenario and I'm looking for a case on point. It's hard to resist the temptation to um, squeeze your case into, you know, the handful of cases we have from a Canadian perspective. And of course, you know, hard facts are ten, hard facts in difficult cases tend to be the ones that get litigated. So how do you balance all of that, Dan? How do you, uh, what's your, um, what's your approach when you're, when you're, knowing that there's such a dearth of case law in Canada often? Well, I have to disagree with the question. Uh, <laughs> I've read now probably more than a thousand cases on, in trademarks alone. Yes, maybe my copyright bias. <laughs> yeah. So there's lots of, lots of decided trademark cases, and they go back a long, long ways, even before uh, the turn of the 20th century. Um, there were case, reported cases on trademarks. What I have found in reading all these cases is that in very large measure, the judges repeat the same stuff. <laughs> the same precedents are repeated over and over and over again. And so the fact is that everybody knows what the law is, or everybody should know what the law is. And the trick is in applying the law intelligently and fairly and with a good dose of common sense to the, the specific facts. And for the most part, I think judges get it right. I think probably the judgments are way too long uh, <laughs> because if they, if they uh, set out the facts and they figure out what result they want, it shouldn't take a lot of stuff in between to, to rationalize the, the decision. Uh, and Dan, so you, you mentioned earlier that uh, it's important to use common sense and to take a very practical approach when a client comes to you with an issue as good client service. How does common sense have a role in dispute resolution then? You know, I've been at this, as you know, Kat, for a long, long time. When I started off, I tended to be, um, if anything, a little overly passionate about my client's interests. And I remember one time uh, a client um, felt that they had really been hard done by, by another company. And so they asked me to send a letter, which I did. And it was blistering in tone. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I thought I really nailed this, you know, company to, uh, in, in that letter. However, the lawyer for the company to whom the letter was addressed wrote back an even more blistering letter accusing my client of things that were far worse than we ever accused his <laughs> client of. So as a result, I uh, realized from that uh, very early stage in my career to be very careful about criticizing things that others have uh, done. And the common sense angle is to look at any dispute not just from your client's point of view, but from the adversary's point of view. And I think um, when you do that, you find that uh, you're dealing with shades of gray. Mm -hmm. And I think a really good lawyer is a person who can explain to her or his client what both sides of the case are about. And when you do that, then often the clients' eyes get opened to the possibility of compromise. They may not like it at first, but if you can explain the situation to them in a way that, you know, they, you know, they need to know that you're on their side, of course, but if you explain the situation in terms of the big picture uh, terms, how it will ultimately react to their competitive environment with this particular company, what the costs are, what the risks are, and and what they themselves have been doing that may annoy their adversary. I think you can find a, a solution that it doesn't always work, but it may help to find a way of uh, achieving a compromise that both sides can live with. As has been said many, many times, a bad compromise is better than a good lawsuit. <laughs> so... so um, some of my friends are really highly regarded uh, mediators, and they follow that approach. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I think um, today's uh, discussion was very interesting. The Breskin and Parway certainly came through. Common sense, practical, measured, tailored advice. Um, we appreciate you taking the time, and thank you all for joining us today. Thank you very much, Kat. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Dan. Our guest for this podcast has been Dan Breskin. Information on this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Breskin and Par professionals, including Dan Breskin, would be pleased to advise you. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinandpar.com slash podcasts. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it notifies you when there's a new one. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Parr LLP. Until next time.